Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Gareth Dimelow. Hello, Gareth. Hello there, Stuart. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Now, just for the purpose of listeners understanding who's on the podcast with me, Gareth is someone I I met through social media, I guess that's the way to describe it, as he was a fairly uh, rabid writer on Sabotage Times, covering film and TV on there. And uh, because my... Um, my Twitter name tells you what town I'm in. He realised that he lived too far from me, so a mutual love of horror films became a reason to then get in contact. So here we are. It's nice to be here. Indeed. Thank you for having me. Destiny was to come and talk about five great British horror films. Absolutely, although we may need to caveat the word great. Oh, no, it's <laughs> great. Great in the sense that we're not... And just for the... For the, so listeners understand, this is, a, this is a new idea that I'm developing on the back of Britflix podcast, and it's to allow us to talk more broadly about the horror genre, because that's where I have a bias, mm. and while I don't always speak to horror filmmakers, every year I do quite extensive coverage of Fright, Fright, Fest, Fright, Fest, Fright Fest, British films. So, as a way of, of correcting that bias, I thought I'd get people on who I know like horror and talk about five great British horror films, but not in the sense that these are the greatest, because I just probably spend every week talking about The Wicker Man, Blood and Satan's Claw, Don't Look Now, American Over London, and Hellraiser every week. Although we may, we may cover some of that ground. Maybe, I already have maybe one. <laughs> but I already have done. And, and, but the point is, when, when I spoke to Chris Brown, because, dear listener, this is the second time we've done this, uh, this format. Uh, the first one was with Chris Brown from the last horror podcast. And... And he got, he got into the spirit of it right away with his selections and looking down the list of what uh, Gareth's chosen, it's the same thing. So this isn't a definitive, these are the five British horror films, best ones ever made. I'd probably struggle to make that case if that's what I was <laughs> positing. But they are interesting and that's yeah. the point of talking about them, to find out why they're interesting. Absolutely. So the format goes, Gareth. Yes. You get, we get ten minutes to have a chat about each one. Okay. I'll follow your lead. Yeah. I may butt in, but I'll I'll follow your lead generally speaking. Yep. Um and when the ten minutes are up, we move on to the next one. Fantastic. We're gonna do them in date order if that's alright. That's fine. And we'll do and I, we'll announce them each time we get to them. Great. 
So people can't go Googling ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ready? And away we go. Okay. So the first film I chose is probably the least auspicious of the five that I selected. And it really would never, in anyone's wildest dreams, be considered a great film. Um, I do like the fact that it's from my birth year. It's from 1975. And I think... In retrospect, when I think about why I chose it, it's because, to me, it represents a point at which British filmmakers probably realised that they needed to up their game. And I think, around the time of this film, British horror was probably entering the doldrums a little bit. Um, And it's probably not until the next film we're going to discuss that it really started to come back into its own. That's some doldrums then. It's a it's a fairly lengthy doldrum period, and I can attest to how doldrumy it felt. In so the... this this is this is what this is the end of the end, as it were, or the beginning of the end. Sorry. Oh, I think this is the end of. So the, have we even said the name of the film yet? Ghoul. The Ghoul from nineteen from nineteen seventy five, um, starring Peter Cushing and uh, John Hurt. Uh, John Hurt when he was a young man, which I think some of us probably think never happened. Um, who we just sadly lost a month or so ago. Mm. Um, it is quite striking seeing him as a young man because he has played so. His, his career has been so top heavy in many senses. Absolutely. Um, the Ghoul is a really interesting film, and there's a couple of things that I really wanted to talk about mm. in terms of why I chose it. For me, it was an it was an entry it was an entry an entry point. I know we've talked before about um, I think it was BBC Two used to regularly show sort of archive horror movies on Friday nights, mm. and in the early era of video recorders, it was customary to set the timer on the video, go to sleep, and wake up on a Saturday morning and see what horror film you'd recorded overnight, and that was how I discovered the Ghoul, along with you know. Um, the Mummy Shroud and, you know, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed and all of those great Amicus and Hammer movies. And there was something about the ghoul that just felt a bit different. And I think it was a period piece, but it wasn't the same period as all the others. It was set in the 1920s. So that made it, whilst not contemporary, it made it a little different. Mm. It's also got some of the most hilarious flapper-style dancing. The opening party scenes are just extraordinarily bad um, everybody clearly choreographed within an inch of their lives and grinning hard as if their life depended it's on it it's very modular isn't it the film it's weird because it's not a horror film to start with Benny Stretch's imagination no and it's it's sort of a bit broad it's almost played for laughs it's got some terrible rear projection work on the cartridge the basic premise is very simple um, two young pairs of kind of flapper party set um People set out on a car race to Land's End, um, come a cropper in the fog, as they always did in those days, mm. um, and end up in the grounds of a large mansion occupied by Peter Cushing and his mysterious staff. Um, they're rather quickly polished off, um, only for then the film to move around and focus on the mystery that dwells in the attic. Mm. Um I think it's safe to say that when we're dealing with a film that's 41 years old, there's no such thing as a spoiler warning anymore. So we're going to ruin the film for you if you haven't seen it. And that's likely since it's not available on DVD or Blu-ray. True. Uh, But it is actually available on a very low resolution 
version on YouTube. Which uh, I certainly enjoy. Yeah, yeah. It's it. Yeah, like I said, it's not a great movie. I think for me, it was it was atmospheric enough to stick in my memory for the let's say. 28 years that elapsed between me seeing it for the first time and rediscovering it on YouTube a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that bears some scrutiny as a representative of a phenomenon in British horror films is when when I was trying to... I didn't know what the name of this film was. All I could remember was that Peter Cushing was in it and I loved Peter Cushing as an actor, not least because he reminded me of my grandpa. Um... And all I knew was there was a house and a something in it that was mis- had some mystical origins or some sort of weird spell was involved or some ancient um, exotic religion. <coughs> and as I started Googling to try and find the name of the film, I realised that this was almost a mini-trope in itself. And as I've been... Recently rediscovering some of the old Hammer films, I realised that The Reptile, um, The Blood Beast Terror, Mm. The Beast in the Cellar, and even what was my favourite Doctor Who story when I was a kid as well with Peter Davidson called Black Orchid, all effectively told the same story. They were all stories of well-to-do people living in big, austere mansions that had some horrible family secret locked away in the attic. And that family secret was usually some sort of cursed, diseased, malformed family member that had turned into some sort of carnivorous, cannibalistic, Mm. inhuman monster. And it's the exact same story in all of them, particularly if you look at the reptile and... um, the, the ghoul that we're talking about today, right down to the kind of weird Indian slash somewhere in, in the sort of mystical Orient. And it was as broad and as, as anachronistic as the term mm. the Orient sounds. I appreciate that that's not a contemporary term, but that's definitely how it's presented in these sort of it cr- I mean, historical it's, films. It's a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, but... It's interesting that they attempted to resurrect this story trope with uh, the boy. I don't know if you've seen that yet. The porcelain boy story. Yes. Yes, I have. Which? Um, which was set in England but wasn't English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all entirely American. Mm. But quite convincingly done. But I think there was something kind of... I mean, massively distasteful when you look at the ghoul. The first thing you notice is that his Indian serving woman isn't Indian. No. She's just a white actress with some... Um, Oxo rubbed on her face yeah. um, and she occasionally wears a sari when she comes into the room and it's all that horrible sort of late 60s early 70s black face that British filmmakers used to do we did this at my primary do. school when we did Robinson Crusoe and I'm right? sure it felt entirely appropriate in those days I'd, I'd like to think we've evolved as a culture but, but there, there was this inherent fear of other that I think these films almost inadvertently addressed, but maybe for the wrong reasons. And, you know, there's a lovely bit in The Ghoul where Peter Cushing apologises that they'll be enjoying a vegetarian diet. That made me laugh. Which, which I suppose was put in by the filmmakers as a sort of bit of a joke, because, of course, the beast in the attic is a cannibal. Mm. Um, so for all of their attempting to live a vegetarian lifestyle, there's one bit where they fail, and that's the fact that they devour each other. But I think the, the other thing that's really interesting looking at the ghoul is um, how tame it is. 
it's so PG in its horror. Mm. The stabbing, you know, this is a film that was made 15 years after Psycho, and it feels so desperately tame when, you know, two women are attacked with knives and the camera is almost uncomfortable even looking in their direction. It keeps looking away and there's swirls of, of lace and, and mosquito nets. And it, it's all just a bit... And when you think that at the same time as The Ghoul was being made, Toby Hooper was making Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh, yeah. and, um, you know, they were shooting the... Well, The Exorcist was probably two years old by that point. These films that were really on the cutting edge of what audiences could stand and what we had was this rather mild... You know, it's only upsetting because... And this would have played at the cinema, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is, which is insane. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting anecdotes you'll find about it if you read up on the web is um, there's a scene where Peter Cushing talks lovingly about his, his dead wife. And in the film, they'd really used a photo of his actual wife who'd only died, I guess, 18 months before they made wow. the movie. And Peter Cushing really struggled to do that scene. He, he felt like it was a real stretch for him because it was unearthing too many raw emotions. And what you actually get from the film is that Peter Cushing is outclassing everyone in it by a country mile. He's just so good mm. because he's Peter Cushing and everything else is kind of rather stilted and staccato and you even forgive him some of the most appalling fake violin playing that you'll ever see. There's this really awkward conversation that he has with one of the flappers in his parlour where she asks him to play and he says, oh, I couldn't. And she goes, go on then. And he goes, okay, I will. And then he mm. sort of mimes a bit of music and she says how lovely it is and then she sort of falls asleep and it's just a really... But there's a lot of potential in it, isn't there? Which is what I found weird, that the, the John Hurt character is should have been a lot nastier and should have been... Yeah, well, he... Oh, look, the time's Oh, we're done. Watch <laughs> the girl, it's great-ish. <laughs> so that's the first ten minutes on yeah. the girl. So... Next ten minutes, we're going to jump to nineteen eighty-seven, where the where the the, the 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 trough of British horror yeah scoops back up to a peak yeah with uh, Hellraiser. That's right. So, as Stuart said in his intro, I don't think Hellraiser Hellraiser needs much of an introduction, and I think also other people will probably discuss it because it's a fairly iconic. Um, both literally and figuratively. But for those listening, how, how, what would you describe it as? How would you? It is a an S and M trip into hell um, with a very eighties aesthetic. Mm. Um, I think trying to channel that mid to late eighties franchise sensibility with something far more ambitious into which seems very you know typical of Clive Barker there's there's mysticism there's religiosity there's there's the idea that I think a bit like Lovecraft he was trying to create worlds beyond our world rather than just put people in jeopardy here in a world that we recognize every day and I think it it's a fascinating film not least for its ambition Wildly exceeding its capabilities, mm. um, you know. It was but made in the heart. I mean, I know, I know that's the the S and M and the fantastic creatures in this other world, mm. but ostensibly, 
It it's is. a vampire movie. I'm not this. Isn't it just a curse movie? No, it's a va- I, th- I see it as a vampire movie. It's basically oh, okay. those scenes that they used to do at the start of each Christopher Lee Hammer movie mm. where you'd see him gradually being brought back to life with some sacrificial blood being dripped on his desiccated bones. Yeah. It's basically that stretched out over 90 minutes as, um, as one of the protagonists is slowly resurrected from hell hmm. through regular sacrifices by his um, erstwhile companion who is also rather soap opera styly the wife of his brother but but the the the, the puzzle box is what makes people yeah, but, do the sacrifice isn't it yeah i mean the the puzzle box is kind of a I, and i i don't buy that idea of a curse because by what is a puzzle box if not for unpuzzling Right? Okay, okay. So you're not really being um you're not being rebellious, you're not breaking any rules by trying to solve a puzzle. That's why it exists as a puzzle. So the notion of But you're told that the you're told not to have it, aren't you? But then why do it? I just, I, I just struggle with the logic of that. And I think okay. I I get the feeling that, you know, Clive Barker has always been um keen to explore the outer extremes of um, sexuality and um, demonology and fantasy, both you know, dark and sexual, um, and that's that's clearly represented in some of the imagery of the film. You know, all the black kit, the clanking chains and stuff. You could be in a you know club under the arches in London on a Saturday you. night with half of that imagery. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes it interesting. I I think one of the things that that really stands out for me about Hellraiser, other than the fact that it was such an ambitious movie made for a million dollars. And I think Clive Barker really just used it as a calling card. He wanted to make a movie to show that he could make a movie because clearly his ambition and his vision was so much grander. But I think Hellraiser probably suffers from that, I call it the Andy McDowell factor. It's if we need to get anyone outside of the UK to watch it, we need some Americans in there. Right. Um, which is why you end up with Andrew Robinson as the dad and um, and then his obviously his daughter and I think some of the other characters ended up being dubbed over with American accents as well I, don't know. I think the theory was that they could almost convince audiences in the US that they were watching an American film which doesn't really say much for all the establishing shots of the you know pre-renovation London Docklands that figure throughout the movie. But it was, for, as a Colin Card goes then, it was a pretty oh, it's a massive mass- a statement, wasn't it? It was, a, it was a statement as a writer. Was a, I mean, don't forget, it wasn't his first film to be associated with. He, he'd already uh, contributed the story for a movie called Underworld and he'd also had Rawhead Rex adapted. Of course. Yeah, um, yeah, which, yeah. you know, also wasn't particularly auspicious. Um and I think Hellraiser was his, we've got some money, let's do as much as we can mm. and see where it takes us. Because at that point, you know, Clive Barker's rise to fame was pretty quick. Books of Blood came out, Stephen King called him um, the face of horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and suddenly he was, he was up and running and along came Hellraiser. And I think, you know, Hellraiser is one of those films that's probably more interesting from the anecdotes around it than it is just as a standalone. You watch it now, 
there's nothing inherently frightening about it. There are some great scenes of tension and there's some pretty spectacular effects work that stands up to date. There's also some god-awful effects work. But this is where, this is where for me, in my mind, I was, I've always associated with the curse element because while you're right on some of those effects and stuff, the Pinhead character... Is the Pinhead character who wasn't called Pinhead in the first film? He didn't exist. He was actually called the Priest. But I can't. I can't change what he's been called. No, no, no. Of course. <laughs> I'm just throwing in tidbits of trivia. <laughs> and is that you're locked into this? You can't. You don't just escape. You don't go. Sorry, I don't want to play anymore. Mm. You have to see it through, which mm. is the, to me is that is a. Although that and, and that's probably what's interesting about it is Frank did escape. <clears throat> he just escaped with the blood sacrifice. The blood went on the mattress, mm. filthy mattress. It was, wasn't it? Um, and boom, he was back, which suggests that the Cenobites really need a sort of better security protocol. They need a firewall, because if a little bit of spilt blood from someone's torn hand on a rusty nail can bring someone back from the depths of hell, they need to try a bit harder. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's one of those films that, that, that has all the kind of imagination, all the, all the what do you call it, the uh, possibilities, which then seems to, re- to end up being just a standoff in a living room on some stairs. And it, re- and, and <laughs> it really is as small as that sounds. I mean, yeah, which know, is mad, isn't it, considering where the second one goes. It, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and again, I, I can't fault a film for having a bigger vision than it's capable of delivering. Mm. And although I'm sort of slightly snooty about the quality of some of the effects work. I mean, the the visual effects are Did you come at this horrible. age 12, or did you come at this No, older? I, th- I think I found Hellraiser when I was about 14. Okay. 14, 15. So it was still kind of a, it was, a it fresh was, British movie. It, it was new, and, and certainly all of the, you know, resurrected Frank effects and the, and the heads being staved in with hammers and all mm. of that stuff, that was, that was pretty shocking and graphic. Um, it's really... Um, the demon that chases um, what's her name Ashley Lawrence uh, that chases her down the corridor at the end mm. and funnily enough he's one of those films that also suffers from the Blu-ray upgrade because once once everything's been remastered in 2K or 4K there's no hiding some of the slightly shoddy map illustrations in the background yeah, so the when they've got a corridor don't they, yeah. you know you can see the corridor only extends about six feet and then it's just a flat painting but there's a demon that chases her at the end and it's just a big sort of rubbery face and at times you can see the wheelchair that it's been so why is this like why is this i mean it is an iconic movie and it's one that you've pointed out for being introduced so what is it because it is the start yeah the sort of picking up of what I, was a dropped i think hellraiser just ball. proved that we could create something as iconic as franchise worthy as um shocking and contemporary mm. as anything that america was doing because you know i think the 80s were really a a tremendous era for horror in the u.s and you know you can look at maybe it was the slasher phenomenon that began with Halloween. Maybe it was the dawn of VHS that you know put film in more people's hands because they could access it in different ways. Whatever it was, there was a boom of production in the US. Lots of film, you know, it was very rare for a horror film to cost more than about four and a half million dollars, and they would just churn out. You know, that was the golden era for Fangoria magazine mm. profiling effects talents who also I think contributed to it and for me Hellraiser represented 
Britain saying we can make films like that as well. You know, the effects were by Bob Keane and Image Animation, who then went on to do, um, you know, all the creatures in Nightbreed, um, and obviously stayed with the Hellraiser franchise for a while. It put Clive Barker on the map. You know, we then got to enjoy great films like Nightbreed, like Midnight Meat Train, like um, Candyman. It, it was a calling card for, for a lot of things. And as I said, not least Britain going, we can make horror films like, unlike The Ghoul, which felt stuck in the horror films of yesteryear. And it felt like the kind of last fetid breath of a dying beast. I think Hellraiser was like, it's here, it's contemporary, it's current, and it's as good as anything else. That was a good ending. There we go, fetid. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to skip right over the, uh, the 90s. Okay. I'm going to bang up to date, yeah. And uh, bring us into the uh, DVD era. Um, stopping first, 2005, for Neil Marshall's The Descent. Yeah. And I think anybody who loves horror would probably struggle to say that this isn't a great movie. This is in my top five. Yeah. Now, horror films. <laughs> I, I was initially unsure about whether I wanted to see it because I hadn't rated Dog Soldiers at mm-hmm. the time. And I thought its synopsis when I read about it just seemed a little bit basic. Um, and then I found out that a very good friend of mine, Will Davis, had actually done the casting for the movie. So mm-hmm. he'd cast all of the six lead roles. And I was really keen to see it then because I wanted to see what he'd been working on. And we went to see it on a very warm summer's day. And I think my partner and I were the only people in the cinema. And I was terrified. It is, isn't it? It, it was probably... <coughs> Grueling, all so there are several things that I I just think are absolute genius about the descent. So whereas some of the films we've discussed so far, I don't think are necessarily the greatest. I genuinely believe that the descent is. Um, it's great. Into I mean, it passes the Bechdel test with flying colours. Just a little bit. It's got six lead characters who aren't men with breasts, they're all women, mm-hmm. and they're different women, and they're real women, and when you watch it right from the start, there's a lovely scene where they're all bonding in a cabin, and the scene's about five minutes long, you get a sense of who the six women are mm. in relation to one another, both in terms of their backstory and connections, but also the dynamics of the individual relationships, because you've got the lead character and her best friend. Mm. You've got the tension with Juno, who's the alpha female of the group, who's got some backstory with the husband of the lead character. You've got the two characters who are sisters, who have their own bond with each other outside of the main group. And Mm. then you've finally got the young Hellraiser, who is like a protege of the alpha female. So these interesting dynamics going on, even before you've got into the horror of it, um, the film was all shot in Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire, doubling for the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah. And you never once question <coughs> what the film tells you. You know, all it takes is a couple of cars that are left-hand drive and you're convinced. Um, it also, for a film that is set almost entirely in a caving network, it wasn't filmed in any real caves at all. It was all sets in Pinewood. And... I think the combination of the set design and the sound design is completely 
stunningly convincing. And even before the monsters are introduced, you are already shaking with fear. There's a scene where um, there's a cave-in and the lead character is trapped in a very tight tunnel. And she has to be talked out of it because she's panicking and she can't make it through. It's an immense moment. And we were sitting in the cinema, and I swear it's as close as I've ever come to having an asthma attack in the cinema mm. because I just couldn't breathe. Because she's in about what a foot, di- a foot depth of rock, like the f- she's, yeah. There's a the ceiling in the floor. I mean, it's literally her arms are folded up under her chin. Her backpack is catching. For on listeners, the he's, he's imitating the movie. I am. I'm, I'm miming my way through it. Um, and I just thought this film has me absolutely terrified. And it hasn't done anything scary yet, so I I already knew I was loving. And it. I think what, from what you see, from what you're saying to me, what it tells me and hopefully tells the audience is that one of the one of the champion things about it is that you are given a bunch of characters who are going to end up in a horror situation. So you're given a crap long before you need to give a yes. crap because you've already invested some emotion. You, you've in felt it. them in jeopardy and you've wished them out of it, which mm. is brilliant. Um, because the, the way the film tells you it's a horror film at the start has got no relation to where the film goes. No. Other than to go, that's the ghost in someone's yeah. life. There's a... The, so Stuart's alluding to something that happens in the second scene of the movie. Um, and I'll try to do this without spoilers. But something tragic happens. But it happens in such a kind of sudden, violent, unexpected way before you've even had a chance to settle into your seat. Yes. And I think it's one of those great calling cards that says this director, and I know I've read interviews with other horror directors who've said this, they want to establish early on that you're in the hands of a lunatic. Oh, really? Is that yeah. the turn of phrase? Yeah, it's the, I am not in safe hands here, so anything can happen. Mm. And I think that opening scene convinces you of that straight away. I think Neil Marshall probably makes the mistake of pulling that trick again in the cabin before they go down the hole mm. where it's the dream sequence and I just think it's a film that's so great it doesn't need those cheap dream sequence jump moments even though they're brutal and shocking it sort of feels a bit lazy in terms of script. It's horror hokum. It is horror hokum. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, what Friday the 13th sequels used to do with a cat jumping out of a cupboard mm. and a loud screeching noise there's enough real horror in the movie to not have to rely on, oh, she just imagined it. Um, there's, an, there's another brilliant thing about the structure of The Descent that I love, is you don't really discover the threat that they're actually facing until about 35 minutes into the movie, which mm. is great, because as you said, it builds character and tension. But what I also like about how it's constructed is the mistake that horror films always make is they put stupid people in idiotic situations. Yes. And here you've got six women trapped in a caved-in cave because they've gone spelunking. And as someone who would never go into a cave, willingly, (laughs) it would be very easy to dismiss that as, well, you know, they deserve it. You know, you go into that situation, it's your own stupid fault. But they draw a very clever line between adventure-seeking and willfully embracing danger. And it's one character who's responsible for them being in actual jeopardy. Mm. And that then becomes a character beat and something that adds to the story 
that isolates one character rather than them all being idiots, which is brilliant. But also, it gives you this, gives you the, in story sense, it gives you that kind of power of peer groups because nobody's actually strong enough to stop the, the stupider one. Except by the time she's done it, it's too late yeah, anyway yeah, because they're is... trapped on the wrong side in, the, in an uncharted mm. cave network. I, the other anecdote that I love about The Descent, and I'm conscious that we don't have too long on each of these films, but I used The Descent for a great experiment. Um, I used to work for an event agency, and we wanted to demonstrate how measurement could be used to... Uh, well, when I say measurement, I mean audience response technology could be used to measure how engaged someone was with an experience. Mm. And we basically created a cinema in our office with top-of-the-range sound system, full large screen, and everyone on an audience response system that they use for political polling. When someone's doing a political speech, they rate how they're feeling about the different points being made, and it's like, if I really agree, you're a 9 or a 10. If you're saying something that switched me off, I'm a 1 or a 2. Mm. Only we did that to track how tense people were, and we used the dissent for it. Really? And there's one particular scene where it all kicks off and there's screaming and there's terror and there's falling and there's broken legs and then there's a pause and then there's the killer of all jump shots. And on the jump shot, and mm. it's one that uses the night vision camera ah, yeah, yeah. and a pan down the crowd <coughs> and there's a reveal at the end and I swear you could probably hear the screams of my colleagues three districts away mm. um, and the numbers went off the scale. And what we ended up with was... a almost like a, a cardiogram yeah. of the mood of everyone in the room. And, and I couldn't think of a movie that would have given us those results more effectively than The, the Descent in terms of tension, release, tension, release, absolute terror. And I mean, and, and just thinking about when, when this film came out, isn't, isn't it, didn't this come out actually on the week of 7-7? I almost think that. No, it came, it came out sort of it came out the week before and unfortunately the poster for the film with the woman screaming and a tagline that was something like terror trapped underground. Mm. That poster was on the side of the bus that blew up. No. In London and so all of the imagery because there was no imagery of the tube trains that mm. were that were bombed it was just that bus. Um and all of the imagery around that bombing had the descent right in the heart of it. And I think that, plus the idea that it was terror trapped underground, I think it was too much for people. And I, mm. I think that, plus the reviews were all saying this actually was a terrifying horror movie. I wonder whether some people just thought, do you know what, I'm not up for that at all. But thankfully, you know, and that's why I'm glad that we've got DVDs and Blu-rays, is people have been able to discover it. Yeah, no, no it was... Uh... A, a great sophomore effort mm -hmm. from, uh, from Mr. Marshall. Right then, so we're not jumping too far. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to 2008 now. Mm -hmm. For probably the obvious choices, this is probably the most, caused the most controversy, mm -hmm. and that's Eden Lake. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the writer director of Eden Lake was also the writer of the sequel to The Descent. Yes, I looked at that, yes. Uh, which wasn't <coughs> a bad sequel in itself. No. Um, Eden Lake is an interesting and problematic film. Um, I, as much as I love horror movies, I sometimes find Eden Lake is a film that I, 
I'm just not in the mood for. Because it's not scary the way The Descent is, where it's just a terrifying roller coaster ride. It's troubling and it's it's grim and it's hard to watch. And it manages to be hard to watch without reveling in torture porn. No, it's the, not. the camera looks away a lot and oftentimes the most awful things that are happening happen not off screen but way, way, way in the background. Mm. It's just, I think there's a, a constant sense of unease that's created. So for people who haven't seen it, the basic premise is a young middle-class couple from London go out into the sticks for a romantic camping weekend where the young man plans to propose to his soon-to-be fiance. Um, the young man is a pre-fame Michael Fassbender Mm. Um, who's who's great in the movie? Actually, he's exactly what you need from a and a prefab Kelly Riley as well. And a prefab Kelly Riley. Um, although uh, I'm Fastbender's a list, and she's probably big television list. Big television list, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> big, big telly. Um, but also, it's a star making role for Jack O'Connell. Yes, that's, uh, what, that's what I was remembering before when it, before you came before in. he became famous, and he is almost supernaturally good in it. He's so unpleasant and Mm. so terrifying. And it's really hard... You know, there are lots of horror films with scary kids in them. And actually, they're rarely dependent on the child knowing how to be scary. Mm. They just have lots of shots of them not blinking or, you know, lurking in doorways and being a little bit spooky. Jack O'Connell is a terrifying child in this film because you never doubt that he knows what he's doing. Um, there are a lot of interesting points that I think Eden Lake makes in terms of, peer, you know, we talked earlier about peer pressure. Um, there's a gang of kids who are, I was going to say feral, and then I thought that's maybe where the film was misjudged. I think it was... They're unafraid of the consequences is what they are, which yeah. is not feral, is it? That's fairly conscious. No. And actually, when you see where and how they live... It's not the class warfare that I think people were quick to dismiss it as. There was a feeling that it was. It well, was, hoodie horror was a, was a, was a subgenre that was evolving. Horror, yeah, so there was F, there was Cherry Tree Lane, there mm. were there were quite a few films about that. I I think addressed a valid fear that people had that, you know, they were seeing kind of violence and kids who were unafraid. To be threatening, but this isn't urban, is it? Which is the most of the hoodie horror is about wandering onto the wrong estate. Yes, Whereas exactly. This, is, this should be where it's pretty safe. Yeah. And like I said, when you see where Jack O'Connell's family live, it's a big, you know, they've, house, isn't it, they've a big got garden. a big garden. A, I was going to say swimming pool. It's more like a tall paddling pool, but it's it's a pool. They're having a party. They they live well, mm. so it's not it's not as simple as. Rich versus poor, or but it is rural versus city, and in a way, it's kind of. I mean, it's going to be, this is really praising it too high. TCM. Yeah, it yeah. Is, it is well, like a, it's as near as Britain's got to. So in my film collection, yeah. it's in the Urbanoia category, which is so Urbanoia is urban paranoia. So okay, okay. it's in there with deliverance, deliverance, wrong turn, <coughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. um, breakdown with Kurt Russell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those films that typify a sort of cultured 
urban, liberal, middle-class lifestyle suddenly being confronted with what happens... It predicted Brexit, if I think about it. <laughs> God, it certainly feel like Brexit, trapped in a bathroom with someone hammering on the door, a murderous <laughs> intent in their eyes. Yeah, um, yeah it, I, funnily enough, that there's one scene in particular that is that just stands out for me, and it's a moment of casual brutality... Um, that's meted out to a boy who isn't even part of the story um, and he's waiting for his mum and he's in the woods and he gives away where Kelly Riley's hiding mm. and they set fire to him mm. and you, like I said the camera looks away so it's only in the background but you see that the kids have gone through with their threat and once you see what they would do to each other with no qualms about, you know, punishment or retribution, you suddenly realise what a terrifying force they are. And I think that's what's clever about the film, because it doesn't try... Like you say, because you see what what we would associate with aspirations, you don't have to get out that they've been badly parented in the the true sense of where poverty takes you. No. These are just kids that have decided they can be evil. And because they don't have the emotional capacity to deal with what their intellect yeah. can do. They're just delivering on what they want. Yeah, except that I mean, <coughs> there's something particularly calculating about Jack O'Connell's character, you know, right at the end as... We're sort of giving away some of the ending here, but as events reach a conclusion mm. downstairs, you see him just coldly deleting all the footage that he's filmed on his mm. phone of their violent acts. Oh, yeah, no, he's psychopath, then, not sociopath. And then he, he puts on his sunglasses, but at, at the same time you see the... The families that have raised these awful kids, you know, reacting how you expect you would if it was if you heard that your kid had been injured, they're they're sort of they're demonstrating a community, albeit one with kind of screwed up morals, mm. um, and that they're protecting their own. So you, I guess my, my I, I took me a few. I said to you before we started recording, Eden, I took me a few watches to sort of get to appreciate what I like, what what's to like about yeah. it because. First watch, I was just like, "This is this is everything the Daily Mail feels." Yeah, it does feel like a horror film, and it ends on that note as well. Yeah, it does feel like a horror film made for a Daily Mail audience, Um, which is weird because it's a very visceral movie as well. It really is, and 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 I think that's why I like it. Well, like is 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 perhaps the wrong word. It's why I respect it Hmm. and why. I sometimes go back and rewatch it because it makes me feel something. I don't necessarily like what it makes me feel, but it mm. takes me on that journey. It's kind of like you watch a weepy. You don't watch a, a sad movie because you want to be sad, made, but you want to feel something. Well, it made me know, if I, if I ever doubted it, that I, I am not an alpha male because there's, there's no way that if I took Tiff to a secluded area and a bunch of kids, front the kids with Rottweilers were yeah. going, get off our land, yeah. and I wouldn't stand my ground. I'd go, yeah. Tiff, we're... Uh, we're off. But, I, but and I think what it does in that sense is <clears throat> it, it gives a very accurate representation of how it is to be a grown-up and, and still feel that you can be physically intimidated mm. by a child because I think we are of a generation now where that's a thing. Would and you... when, when we were kids, it would have, it would have been impossible as children, for us to intimidate grown-ups. There was literally nothing we could have done that would have made a grown-up feel 
uncomfortable or unsure. Mm. It, 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 it just wasn't in our But I think that's, that's where it fuels the... the um, the kind of urbanoia, did you say? Urbanoia, yeah, yeah. which is the and, and particularly looking at the kind of way the DML sees the world, yeah. Um, is that and yet they're in an area of outstanding natural beauty. It's not like they've got no, they're like, about to build it's a, not a like hills have eyes, they've yeah. not gone to um, you know, some nuclear testing ground, they're in some beautiful area that's about to become golf courses and yeah. luxury housing. And maybe that's one of the points that they were trying to make that it's not you know, middle class versus working class, but it's more the idea that there's a territoriality that we all feel over no, our change, home. Change is, change is something that we don't have to accept, yeah. is, what their, is, what their, is what their violence is saying. Even though the kids themselves are simply, that they're, they're not intellectualising their right to the space, they're just going, we were here first on this beach by this lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you can move. Mm. Although they, right from the start, they're clearly wanting to antagonise. They're wanting to make the couple uncomfortable. And I think maybe that's the modern phenomenon the film picks up well, is that you've got, you've got kids today who don't fear adults. Yeah. And I, I'm, to honestly admit, I'm saying that, and, and, and maybe that's always been so. It's just that I didn't, I didn't see it. I think it's, it's oh. definitely a new phenomenon, I think. Indeed. Right then, finally, the fifth film of your five great British horror yes. films is a rather obscure choice. I say obscure not because it's particularly obtuse mm. in, in, in its subject matter, but in the sense that it's a, it's a 2012 movie, and I'm going to use myself as a barometer, <laughs> that I'd never heard of it until you pointed Did out you to really me. Not? No, so do you want to tell, me, tell us what it's called? Yeah, it's called When the Lights Went Out. Um... A Yorkshire poltergeist story. It's a Yorkshire poltergeist story. So it's set in Pontefract. Mm-hmm. Um, the writer-director is the son of one of the women who's the character in the film. Um, so it is a documented uh, poltergeist case. It's so no, the writer-director is, is the son, is the of, son of, who, of, of, who of one of the characters it. in the movie. Yes. Wow, yes. okay. So he remembers being outside the house... Um, his mother was a fr- a close friend of the family involved mm-hmm. and at some point was somehow involved because she claimed to be sort of a medium. That feels like a very Yorkshire thing. Lots of women claim to be sort <laughs> of a bit psychic. Mm. Um, but the, the story is really interesting and at once very familiar. So you have a family in a house with a sort of puberty age teenage daughter mm-hmm. and you get the sense that just as you know those burgeoning hormones start to make themselves known along comes this poltergeist activity then it's discovered that the council estate in Pontefract where they live is very close to the ruins of an old monastery and there was a monk who had been put to death for raping a nun. It all gets a bit, you know, gritty biblical in its backstory. But actually, it's much less about that and it's much more about the family. And I think what I loved about it when I saw it was it felt so much more tangible and believable than most haunted house movies. 
Um, oh really? Yeah, because is it made as a period piece? Yes. So it's set in. So it's set during the blackouts, during the you know the electricity strikes in the nineteen seventies, which is why it's called when the lights went out. What a perfect era to have And he does that brilliantly because, of course, there's a general sense of unease. Mm. Um, you know, this is a family that lives on a council estate, but it's not like poverty porn. You know, because it's at a time where they lived on a council estate, but they, you know, the rooms are all of a comfortable size. They've got the mod cons that they need. They're mm. they're not at they're not on the breadline. They're not flush by any means either. But they live a comfortable life. They've got the working men's club that they go to. That's I guess on the estate. It all feels very real and tangible. And for me, growing up in Barnsley in the nineteen seventies. I know I've been in those houses, maybe mm. not this particular house in Pontefract, although we had friends of the family, so I used to go to Pontefract a lot. This feels like it could have been shot in the village where I lived. Mm. Um, you know, my school friends lived in these, these council houses that were quite a good size, semi-detached, red brick, bay window at the front. Um, so it feels very authentic to me. And I think what... The reason I would recommend that people would watch it, I'd I'd recommend that they watch it alongside The Conjuring 2, the Enfield Poltergeist story. Right. Because the Enfield... Um, what was it called? The Enfield Haunting, the second Conjuring movie. Mm. They'd done some location shooting in London for it, but most of it was shot in the US. It's the, as soon as the Warrens arrive in London, you hear London calling by the clash. And it's like, oh yeah, that's right. We're supposed to be reminded that we're in London. And it all feels hopelessly inauthentic. <coughs> the house itself was, this house in Enfield was probably almost a carbon copy of this house in Pontefract. Only the way it looks in um, The Conjuring, it's this vast cavernous mansion inside. It's got flights of stairs down to a waterlogged cellar that's bigger than most people's houses. There's just a, an unrealisticness about it. Mm. It, it, feels, it feels like a Hollywood take on it. And that was always my problem with films like the Amityville Horror. They were almost as a subtext about films about families living beyond their means. You know, they ended up mortgaging themselves more than they could afford mm. and then trying to find a way out of it. And then, you know, all the horror comes home to roost. With when the lights went out, it's just a normal family in a normal council house and unpleasant, spooky things start happening. But there's something grounded about the haunting as well. Mm. There's nothing so spectacular that you either think, well, that's bullshit, or it's like a massive show of effects. It's all. How do, who do they tell the story from? Is it somebody investigating, or is it is it from? No, the, it's it's from, from the teenage. It's from the teenage girl's point of view, and okay. she has she forms a friendship with a weird little girl who lives on the estate, and some of their moments are laugh out loud funny because in a good way. Yeah, because the writer director has such an ear for how those people spoke, because he's obviously, you know, those were his contemporaries. Mm. The the girl and her friend would have been his contemporaries. Um, one of the things that he's done is he's updated it. If you actually read up about the case of this, you know, the Pontefract... This is Pat Holder we're talking about. Yes. His, um... The, the experience of the haunting happened over a number of years, beginning in the 60s, in taking his actual experiences and his family knowledge and turning it into a movie, he wanted to 
make it cinematic and commercial. So what he chose to do was move it through time and set it in the 1970s. And as I said, it works really well because that uncertainty about, you know, will the power stay on all night? Will the TV stay on all night? Those moments where the TV automatically clicks off or the lights suddenly go out in the house, that suddenly feels a lot more plausible if you're not always looking for a supernatural explanation. Um, But it's all delivered... You know, obviously, it's a horror movie, so the tension gets ratcheted up towards the end, and in the end, there's a slightly showier Mm. manifestation of the haunting. But it's never so over the top as to be completely unbelievable. And as I said, it's just grounded with some really great performances, some really authentic performances, a couple of slightly dubious Yorkshire accents, but nothing... nothing Steve Waddington's Yorkshire, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As I said, mo- most of it feels just completely believable. And it's got that... Sort Kate of... Ashfield's not, though, is she? Have she? Oh, I, I'm not sure about all the origins of the different actors. But there's something lovely and unfussy about the design of it. As I said, it's not... It's not like you design any Yorkshire horror film. Well, it, it's, <laughs> it's not one of those, um, you know, TARDIS-style movie houses where... You know, the exterior shots to establish it are this is the house and then inside yeah. it's built a, as a set on a soundstage and it's, you know, 400 feet wide with these enormous cavernous rooms. The geography of the house inside feels completely believable. Okay, so, so you've got the claustrophobia of where someone lives in Britain as opposed yeah, to a space and, to make a film. And actually, you know, it, it's not even claustrophobia, it's just authenticity. Hmm. So because it doesn't try to be a Hollywood horror movie, it's just resolutely British and of its time mm. which just makes it feel that much spookier because it's You're tangible. telling me it's a stoic horror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and even th- there's, a, a great there's a moment where, where one of the characters comes home and someone in the family has started char- charging tours around the house because they're just trying to make the best of a bad job and rather than selling their story to the papers which is generally what, you know, the family in the, the Enfield haunting were accused of, and obviously the um, the Lutzes in Amateurville. This is a little more, you know, these are the folks next door. It's like, do you want to come in and see if you can see the ghost? We'll charge you a pound and we'll walk you around the house. And the daughter is aghast because she's the one where most of the supernatural activity is being centred. She feels like she's being victimised. And there are other members of the family who are like, well, we can make a couple of quid out of this, you know, while people have been... Does the story go outside the house? Do we see the reaction, yeah. like, in the in the, the local Gazette newspaper, things like that? Um, yeah, I think there's... I, I'm trying to remember. It's a couple of years since I last watched it. But I, I think there's a local journalist who comes to investigate. And there's a teacher who's very aware of how sensitive the, the teenage girl is. And they visit the ruins of the monastery at one point. But it just... It, it felt like it could almost be a snapshot of of when and where I grew up. It, mm. it just feels really, when I say homemade, I don't mean in a sort of, you know, pull So together. a social document as much as a good horror film. Yeah, and in a really um, accessible and interesting way, right down to, I think, I think the girl watches Noel Edmonds' swap shop, or she watches something on the TV and it, it just feels completely right and appropriate to that era. Top of the pops or something. Right then, well, well, thank you for your five great British horror films. Okay. Obviously, I did my intro to contextualise it, but I think 
in this sort of last five minutes or so. Do you want? Do you want to sort of retrace your steps over your five and sort of? Is is there any is there any common ground that you felt you were picking up when you were when you were picking them? What were you What were you ascertaining about your taste in horror? Do you think? Um, well, I think the first thing I'd say is that my taste in horror is fairly broad. I mean, in here we've got we've got the supernatural, we've got kind of feminists versus monsters, we've got the sort of fantastical of Hellraiser, we've got not a Hammer classic, but something that aspires to be a Hammer classic in mm. The Ghoul, and I think we've got the sort of ultra-contemporary realism of an Eden Lake, which has no elements of the supernatural whatsoever. Mm. It's just people being horrible to other people. So I, I'd like to think that it reflects a fairly um, diverse taste in horror. Um, because when I look at... You know, my, my horror collection at home is probably four or five hundred movies. Mm. And, you know, even in that, it's subcategorized into possession movies... Haunting movies, creature um, sort of creature feature movies, slasher movies. Um, Trying to think if there's another subgenre. No, I think that's maybe it. But even in that, then you get, you know, the the old classics, the super contemporary ones, this sort of trashy filler in the middle. And I'm I'm quite pleased that in doing this, although I wasn't expecting them to be so contemporary and recent, I'm sort of glad that something like When the Lights Went Out made, made my list because I think one of the key things to doing an exercise like this is trying to bring films into people's lives where they might not necessarily have seen it, films that deserve to find a wider audience. And I think When the Lights Went Out is a great example of that. It was, you know, it was small and inauspicious. I mean, it, it must have had a fairly decent marketing budget because I heard about it because I'd seen ads everywhere. Mm. And the... It had a really um, compelling uh, poster campaign mm. with a photo that I believe was taken by Rankin of the lead <laughs> of the lead teenage girl just exhibiting sort of bruises and scratches from her tussle with this you know paranormal entity, yeah. and it's a really stark and and troubling image because it's just a girl who looked beaten up. Um, and I, I saw that poster and I instantly thought, well, that looks like that could be an interesting film. And when I saw the name when the lights went out, I actually thought it was more of a British once were warriors, you know, something about an abused teenage girl. Mm. Um, and I think unlike a film like... Do you remember there was um, a period piece in the States? It was called something like An American Haunting and it starred... Sissy Spacek and Donald Sutherland mm. and it was a famous haunting case but as you go through it you realise that what was manifesting as a supernatural phenomenon was actually the family internalising the abuse that they were suffering oh, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. hands of family members and I like that when the lights went out didn't really try to go down that route, they didn't pull the well is it real or is it, it mm. was told with a sort of Honesty, you know, as honest as a based mm. on a true life haunting. But it's interesting for me that you've kind of on, at the one end you're draw, you're sh you're shedding light, excuse the pun, on a film that might not have got enough at the time. Yeah. But equally, looking back, you're you're saying here's one that might have got lost because it didn't it didn't have anything 
What, The Ghoul? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, the, the Ghoul isn't a great movie by any means. It's it's exactly what it's set out to be. It felt like a, a schedule filler at best. Mm. Um, and I think it was it was representative of a film industry that had lost its mojo by that point. You know, there's but, no drama in it. I mean, it's like it must have been written. I mean, it's inert, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's the point. When I watched it, I mean, there's there's many a thing with a Hammer on Amicus horror film mm-hmm. where you can kind of go, well, that's a bit silly. Yeah. But at least the the general rules of drama in a scene yeah. are being applied. There's a really weird, there's a really weird, <laughs> even I know if the story doesn't hang together. We've sort of looped our way back, but there's a there's a odd scene early on where it's the character who isn't Alexandra Bastido, it's the other flapper who has an awful lot of screen time and not a lot to do and it it feels like they were almost emulating the psycho model of well we're going to spend all this time with this female character so we're going to assume that she's the lead and then about 30 minutes in bang she's dead Mm. and little is made of her death other than the fact that it then brings the other characters coming to try and find her. I don't take it too seriously. I mean, the thing that was interesting about the whole flappers is that they, one, I can't remember which one it was now, one of them was was, was obviously more progressive than the other and was like, was bullying the men into doing something they yeah, wanted to do. And, and that was all interesting. Then the film didn't go anywhere with any of that. No, and there's a really, <laughs> if you remember when she... She gets taken into John Hurt's potting shed. Mm. That's not a euphemism. Mm. Um, Although it should be. And he and he slaps her about a bit, mm. and then she runs, and then she ends up in Peter Cushing's house, and then John Hurt comes in and he says, "Oh, here's my gardener," and you just sort of think, I'd probably be a little more annoyed that he was inviting John Hurt in after John Hurt just slapped me about in his. No, that was where it, it really more that jarred more with me. Than the than than the because it was a seventh movie I kind of half expected. Yeah, it's just people just women, people just stop acting like real human beings and they just become characters in a horror movie yeah. who are there to serve a purpose. Or they're there to serve the story's ends mm. rather than to be believable characters. Yeah, and nothing in it is believable. It's all because it's got Ian McCulloch in it as well, hasn't it? From um, from Zombie Two. Or oh God, you, you zombie flesh eaters because he was in a lot of those movies right. as well. No, was it not Ian? Was it Ian McCulloch or Ian Bannon? What was his name? Ian McCulloch was in it. I believe that's all I can think now. All oh, right, not Ian McCulloch then. <laughs> Ian Bannon. We can edit that bit. In. We're not going to. We're going to yeah. leave it in. Um, so, well, let's let's wrap up before we okay. get our next well, our next klaxon. Yeah. Um, so. Can people, you're on Twitter. Yes. If people want to say hello. Yes. We'll put something in the show notes. Thank you. Um, and you have a blog, although it is it's a little dumb at the moment, isn't it? It's hibernating. Yeah. yeah. But it may, it will come back out punching with film and TV. Absolutely. Words and thoughts. Yeah. And thank you very much for coming on the. Uh, Thanks for having me, Stuart. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.